So if you've been listening over the last few weeks or reading, you know I've been making thematic connections between the texts, but for today's reflections, I'm not going to do that in in part because I I think what can be generative about these reflections for you is for me not to draw those connections, leave leave space for you to make your own connections. So I'll just make some observations about the texts, beginning with the Old Testament and ending with the Gospel, and maybe say a little bit at the end about some of the ways in which they might be connected without drawing those connections tightly, without putting a bow on it or anything like that. So first, the Jeremiah text. I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by Jeremiah the prophet and Jeremiah the book. Ricky Moore whom many of you will have heard me reference many times, he, he refers to Jeremiah as the prophet of lost causes. And I think there is something kind of anti-American about Jeremiah in that way, in that there's no, well, maybe anti-American is the wrong phrasing, but something that pushes back on our, our sensibilities, on our sense that we always need to be optimistic, to be hopeful. We always have to believe that there's there's a good outcome in our future in order to be people who believe in the coming of God. And I don't think that's true. I, I, I don't think that confidence in the coming of God translates in a neat way to optimism. Of course, it's not to say that yeah, well, I, I don't, I don't need to say more about that for now. I, I think Jeremiah, though, is is a, is a critically important voice for us to hear, and Jeremiah, as he actually is, and by that I mean the text as it actually is, because there are all kinds of portions of Jeremiah, passages in Jeremiah, that are really memorable, but taken out of context, suggest something very different from what they mean in the flow of Jeremiah's prophecies, including, of course. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, or I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper, no weapon formed against you will prosper, etc. Those those passages are powerful, but they have an altogether different power when they're heard in the flow of what Jeremiah is saying. And so the reading for Sunday includes a passage like that, includes a passage that we all know, but in isolation from the flow of Jeremiah's thought, I think it suggests something very different. The passage I have in mind, or the, the, the portion I have in mind in the passage, is the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? That's the way the, the translation that the lectionary I'm using gives us. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? And, and as you know, taken out of context, that, that can be used as a kind of trump card for any and everything. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which that can, that can be read as anti-humanistic. It can be read as a proof text for a, a severe account of total depravity, that there's no good in us, that to be human is inherently to be devious, to be incapable of knowing yourself. And I, I don't think that's in fact what Jeremiah is 
saying. So let's let's read let's read the flow of the passage given to us by the lectionary, and then consider what what else Jeremiah might be saying, or what else we might should hear. <clears throat> so it begins: Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse who can understand it. I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart to give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. So, there's so much here, I, I think, that, that calls for reflection. But in, in the flow of the prophecy, it seems to me that what, what's being said in the warning about the heart is it's not some kind of blank check condemnation of human self-awareness. I think it's, it's in fact, accomplishing the opposite of that. It's calling us to self-awareness. It's calling us to, to take account of where we are. Are we in the parched places of the wilderness, the uninhabited salt land? Are we in a place of drought? Um, ha have the has the heat come and are we bringing about fruit even though the the drought has come even though we are in parched places and when you attend to those images closely you start to see there's a there's a kind of deep paradox here right in that he on the, on the face of it you've got a contrast between a shrub in the desert and a tree by the water or a tree by the river so the shrub in the desert is in a parched place, in an uninhabited salt land, right? And of course, it's not producing any fruit. It's a shrub in the desert. And then you've got this tree planted by water that sent its roots out into the stream. And it doesn't fear when heat comes, it leave, its leaves stay green. The year of drought comes, but it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, part of, part of the irony there, right, is that there is a shrub in the desert because it has found some water. Or it, or it wouldn't be there, right? Even, however little nourishment it's receiving, it's receiving some, and it, it is springing to life in the desert. And of course, that's one of the prophecies in Isaiah about the coming of the Lord, right? That there will be life in the desert. And so there's this sense in which, isn't the shrub miraculous in that it is, in fact, able to live even in the parched place. And that is precisely what's celebrated about the tree by the water. That the the heat comes, you know, the, the, the summer months come, then drought comes, and yet the tree, because it's planted by water, is does not shrivel away and doesn't cease to bear fruit. And I, I think the point is that the shrub does not have deep roots. So even if it's able to draw some nourishment, it can't bear too much without shriveling and blowing away. Whereas the tree planted by the water, the weather around the tree can change, but if its roots are deeply rooted in the, in, in, in the ground, if it's connected to that underground river, that underground stream, then it can bear 
shifts in in the environment in a way that a shrub cannot. So it is about hiddenness and about the ways in which our roots reach down into that hiddenness to be in touch with a source that is unseen, right? Unrecognized by those who are near us and, and unrecognized by us as well. So that when we talk about the heart not being knowable, devious and perverse, I think this cuts both ways in, in part because Jeremiah has already said, right? And we'll return to this again. God is devious in a sense, right? Like you deceived me, he said, you deceived me. And so there's, there's a, a way in which deviousness here might not be heard as sheer wickedness, right? So I think you know, some translations just translate it out and out as wickedness, right? The heart is desperately wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. But I think there's a way in which in the flow of Jeremiah's thought, and not just this passage I'm reading, but the whole of the book, what's being said here is that is that the heart is always up to more than we know, in part because our hearts at their depths open out on the infinite creative life of God. And God is always up to more than we know. So yes, I think it's true that we can deceive ourselves and and be badly motivated, have ulterior motives that we're, we're unaware of. There are all kinds of ways in which we can deceive ourselves. Our hearts are devious in that sense. But also, I think our hearts sometimes can be better, can be more can, can be conspirators with God in a way that even we're unaware of. And I think about like the conversion of C.S. Lewis, for instance, one of the most famous conversions in, in the last few generations. And, and Lewis talks about how he was the most reluctant convert, right? He's, he's encountering God in, in all these ways and trying to resist it. And then ultimately kind of yields, can't, he gets on the train, I think he says, I get on the train as an atheist, and, and when he gets off the train after, after having read George MacDonald, Fantasties, I believe, he says he's the most reluctant convert. And I, I may be mashing details of that story together, but you know, it's easy enough to find the, the record if you want to look it up. I, I think the point there is that Lewis's heart, right, had already kind of been drawn away to God before Lewis's mind knew it or admitted it before Lewis's body came in line with it. And I, I think it's important to hear that here, that there's, there's a kind of promise in it, in that our hearts, in, their, in the hiddenness of our hearts, the depths of our hearts, we might be planted by a river of water and not know it. And we might be shrubs and not know it. So I think we can be a shrub and think we're a tree, but we can also be a shrub that has trees roots and, and, and not yet know it because of the creativity of God, because of the ways in which God works with our hearts. And God is greater than our hearts in the language of 1 John. And so that's the promise of the Lord here. I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart. And I don't want to overstretch, or I don't want to yeah, overstate that distinction between testing the mind and searching the heart, because it's obviously a parallelism. But I think the, the there's a way in which the searching of the heart is God is creating what he's looking for there. Not in a way that violates the integrity of our freedom, not in a way that it violates the integrity of our desire, but it's not simply that God is 
looking to find goodness in us and then approving it or disapproving. It's God's searching brings about the goodness he's looking for. But again, only in a way that is true to our responding to that search. So the testing of the mind and the searching of the heart is, is not merely God reporting on what he discovers, but it is God uncovering what is in us at the depths that we might not yet be aware of. So one, one more or two more details from this passage just to draw out without, again, thematically connecting them. One is, I think there is another kind of hidden promise in this notion that the shrub is in an uninhabited salt land and we're called to be the salt of the earth so that the church becomes the uninhabited salt land in which shrubs can be opened up to that underground river. And I, th I think the, the paradox there is the point, right? There's, there's a way in which what seems to be death is life and what seems to be life might in fact be death. And we, we have to think in that, that kind of, not polarity, of course, not one against the other, but one with the other, that paradox of the uninhabited salt land is in some ways the place of judgment. I mean, it's it's Sodom after the fire of God has rained down, but it's also the church. It's being the salt of the earth. It's inhabiting the wilderness where Christ shows himself faithful. And being the tree planted by the river of water is not about appearances, right? There too, the heat comes the drought comes. It's about what's happening hiddenly, what's happening deep underground and deeper than our own awareness of what God is doing. And it, it's about trusting that God is at work in us no matter what we're experiencing. And this, again, is why I, I don't think we ever want to draw any neat straight lines between what's happening in our lives day to day and what God is doing in the depths of our hearts day to day. And out of that still comes fruit, right? So the, the, the very last line of this passage is to give all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. And I, I think this is such, this is to me so hopeful, right? That there's a way of focusing on doing, on performance, on doing what needs to be done that can be really it's anything but life life giving right i mean there, there's a there's a kind of focus on behavioral modification or moralism that you know, plagues so much of american christianity especially perhaps american evangelical christianity but there are ways in which what we do matters it brings about results in people's lives it brings it there is fruit to what we do and God knows that fruit. God knows the fruit of what we say and do in ways we simply cannot. And so he's not only judging us, God is weighing the outcome of, of how we live and what comes from the way that we live. And I, I think there's incredible hope in trusting that God's goodness is at work in me, 
more deeply, more li- more life givingly than my circumstances suggest, and that my life is impacting others in in ways that are good beyond my awareness of it. So, to the psalm, Psalm one, which Gregory of Nyssa sees as a kind of map or legend for the map of the rest of the psalm, and he Gregory reads the psalms as essentially moving from Psalm 2 to Psalm 150. We end in praise, in just sheer adulation and adoration, but we begin in the process of sanctification, of being moved through lament and praise and obedience into a share in the joy of God's life. And that's what was being mapped for us, or that's the legend that's being given to us for the map here at the beginning of the Psalter, Happy are those who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seats of the scornful. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in due season, with leaves that do not wither. Everything they do shall prosper. It is not so with the wicked. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked shall not stand upright when judgment comes nor the sinner in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. So again, we, we've got resonance, of course, between these texts. There does seem to be this difference between the tree in Jeremiah, which brings forth fruit even in drought, and the tree in Psalm 1, which brings forth fruit in due season. But perhaps again, the point is the due season is the drought, right? The time to bring forth fruit is not, it's not dictated by the weather. It's not dictated by the seasons that it's, it's brought about by the life of God that's hidden from our experience, at least mostly hidden from our experience virtually all the time. So I I think there's that point of resonance. There's also this, promise that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And and there are lots of ways to hear that line, but one would be that even the righteous don't know their way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And of course that, that does bring us to Matthew 25, right? And that in the end, in that last judgment, the, the sheep don't know what they've done any more than the goats know what they've not done, right? That they both say, when did we see you in prison? When did we see you sick? When did we see you hungry? And the Lord knows the righteous, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. And again, I, I don't think we have to hear this as some kind of prediction of eternal conscious torment at all. The way of the wicked is doomed, meaning you can't live the way of wickedness without it coming to an end, because wickedness is not infinite. Wickedness is limited. It's limiting. And the way of the righteous is infinite because it is the way of the life of God. And one of the reasons that it is not known, the way of the righteous is not known even by the righteous, is that it it is participating in the eternal mystery of God's own being. Whereas the way of the wicked is estranged from that. And it's doomed in that, not only in that it's finite, but also in that it's self-defeating, right? That sin is not only against God's will, but it's against our own good and therefore cannot help but undo itself. And that's why, back in the language of Jeremiah, it it is cursed 
to trust in mortality or mere mortals and to trust in flesh or to make flesh our strength. And that, I mean, that is a perennial warning, right? To make flesh our strength, that's cursed. Not because God in anger curses us for having done that, but because to make flesh your strength is cursed because flesh dies. Mortality, I mean, that, that's the name of our species. We are mortal. We die. And we are always dying. We, our strength is limited. Our strength is weak. Whereas God, God's strength is infinite. God's immortal. And so to, to set your hopes in God, to trust in God and not in chariots and horses, is to make God's flesh your strength. It's to make the, the mortality of the immortal one your strength. And that is the, the subterranean river that feeds us, right? That, that preserves us even in drought so that we bring forth fruit in, in the right season. And that has, at least in Psalm 1, at least what I hear is that that has everything to do with what we give ourselves permission not to do. Right? So happy, the, the psalm says, happy are those who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seats of the scornful. And I think, again, lots of ways to hear this, but one of the ways in which I'm hearing it now is that if you trust in the flesh of God, if you trust in the divine creativity as your source, then you don't need to take the counsel of the wicked, which is always the counsel of what do I need to do to preserve my life or to preserve the way of life that I hold precious. I, I, I think there's this really helpful distinction between the demonic and the satanic. And I'm not going to go into deep into it, but just, just to kind of raise this thought. And I'll probably write something up about it when I get time in the next few months. But I, I think evil is always working on two fronts at once. It's working in darkness and chaos to bring about destruction. And that I want to call the demonic. And then it is also working on the other side, from the other angle, in a kind of pincer movement, to deceive us with false light and false order and false success. And the way that the trick works is to make us afraid of the demonic, afraid of chaos, afraid of darkness, afraid of destruction, afraid of loss, afraid of death, afraid of losing our way of life, afraid of poverty, afraid of sickness, make us fear what can go wrong, fear drought. And in order to save us from what can go wrong or what is going wrong, or to deliver us from what has gone wrong, evil offers us a way a kind of way of the flesh that assures us of a short-term victory, right? A short-term triumph over that. So false order, false light, false success. And the counsel of the wicked is, is that. It's the wisdom of the world that is telling us, promising us, if you'll do this evil thing, you can deal with that evil that threatens you, right? This is, this is where the the notion of a necessary evil comes in. And Hannah Arendt, I think, is exactly right about this, that what happens is those who are grasping for power tell you to trust them to do the necessary evil 
But once you've done that, once you've trusted them to do a necessary evil, then you cannot help but convince yourself that you didn't do any evil at all. And now you've confused good for evil and evil with good, and and you're lost. But you're, you're, you're completely overcome. And that's what evil is trying to do. It's trying to to twist our our hearts, to twist, to make our hearts devious, right? In ways that are incredibly destructive and incredibly, what's the word I want here? It, it, it brings about a kind of bondage, a bondage of compassion, a bondage of imagination so that we, we can't see the way of the Lord. And so th- there's a sense in which the way of the righteous is hidden from them in its depths because it's actually the way of God. But wickedness makes it so that we can't see any right way or that we confuse the way we want to go for the way that we should go. And that is is deathly for us and for the people around us. So from the psalm to the, the New Testament reading for the day, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20, which continues Paul's thoughts about, about resurrection. I'll read it and then just a couple of comments and then move to the gospel. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead, or if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. But in fact, not if in fact, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. So again, resonance here with the other text, talk about fruit, fruit that comes in spite of what seems to be happening, right? This is, Christ is this tree that seems to have died and yet, well, did in fact die and yet is, is springing to life. And, and, and I, I should say like that is, that is another layer to the mystery here, right? The promise in Psalm 1 and in Jeremiah is that the tree will not die, but Christ himself does die on the tree and yet is is brought to life so that what we have here i think is christ is sustained even in his being dead by the life of god not that he doesn't die he is in fact dead i mean i was over not this past christmas but the previous one i think it was i was at my parents house and this man came by my dad had been doing some work for him and i don't know how he had found out from my dad what I do. So he came, he came up to me and said, Hey, I hear you're a, you're a theologian and a professor. And I was like, yes. And this is always bad. Like when, when people approach you with, I've heard you are a theologian or a professor, like it, that's never good news. And he's like, so I have a question for you. I was like, sure. And I, and I assumed it was going to be about the rapture or about sexuality, but turns out, it wasn't quite about those things. He says, "What he?" This was the question he asked me. What was Jesus doing? What between 
his death and his resurrection? What was Jesus doing while he was in the grave? And I said, he was being dead. <laughs> he, he was he was dead. And he's like, no, 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 no. I mean, like, obviously he died on the cross, but then he descended into hell and plundered hell and so on. And I realized, I mean, that's what we've all been taught, isn't it? Right? That, that Jesus doesn't really die. I mean, his body dies, but his soul is immortal and his immortal soul descends into hell and there he you know, takes back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And there's some sense in which I think that's right, but I don't think we hear it the right way, right? We, we hear that he didn't really die, and it becomes a way of evading death, a way of evading the, the reality of, of being dead. And then we read passages like Jeremiah or Psalm 1, or Jesus' own words, right? Those who believe in me will never die, as if we're being told that we, we can escape what is worst in life. And then, of course, we work, we extrapolate from that back to the, the environment in which we live should always be fitting, right? That we can declare that there won't be drought, right? There, there, won't, there won't be parched land. And that we, we will always prosper. And, and that's, you know, we, we, we often kind of single out certain forms of Pentecostal charismatic spirituality, the so-called prosperity gospel, for ridicule. But I'm not sure that we're not all holding to some version of that, even if it's a weaker, less pronounced version. I'm not sure that we, we aren't all kind of caught up in that lie that to be a follower of Christ, to be, to be a child of God, is to be guaranteed that life will go well for you. And if it's not going well right now, just hold on, it'll go well tomorrow. And, and that, I think that's a, that's a misreading of what's being promised to us, right? That things do not have to go well in order for things to be well, right? All, you know, it shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, as Julian told us. But that can be true hiddenly. That can be true kind of below the surface. It's really true. But it's true in ways that, that can't be can't be scripted and can't be reported. So what's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, I think, is that listen, if if there is no resurrection, then we're in a pitiable position, and those who have died in Christ have perished. Those if Christ has not been raised, then those who have died in Christ have perished. But it's possible that if Christ has been raised then those who have died in Christ have not perished, but have been brought closer into that source that is their life, so that they are dead to us, but not to God, right? So God is the God of the living, not of the dead. They're dead to us, and they are truly dead, but in God, they are alive. And in Christ's resurrection, a way has been made for us to share life with them and them to share life with us again, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. But again, the first fruits, right? Not not the last, but the first. And is has opened up a way in into life for all of us. And so our faith is not vain, right? Our faith is not vain because of what God because of what God has done. And and with that, let's come to Luke 6. <clears throat> which is Luke's version of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in Luke, it's a sermon on the plain, as you'll hear. Jesus came down with the twelve apostles and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. And so Jesus is magnetic, right? Drawing these people with his wisdom and with his power. They're, they're drawn if they're sick. They're drawn if they're diseased in spirit. If they're, their spirits are unclean, they're, they're drawn to his presence. Then in that place, in that level place where he's surrounded by this great multitude of people, including people from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, right? So like Luke is drawing our attention to the ways in which there are people from the borderlands, right? Who've come. So not only from the center, from Jerusalem, but from the outskirts, which means that there are Jews and Gentiles in this crowd, right? And they've crowded around him. So it's, it's this, it's truly a mixed multitude. And in that place, surrounded by those people, Jesus looks up at his disciples and says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So one of the differences here between Luke and Matthew is that Matthew doesn't give us the woes, but Luke does. Like Luke gives us, blessed are the poor, or blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who weep, blessed are you when you're hated, excluded, reviled, defamed. Because that's the fate of the prophets. But woe to you who are rich as opposed to poor, full as opposed to hungry, laughing as opposed to weeping, because all of that sorrow is coming on you and you've already received your consolation. You've already received your plenty. You've already laughed. So what's in store for you is mourning and weeping. And woe to you when people, when all speak well of you, right? So if, if you're living the life that's blessed, it's going to bring hate, exclusion, revile, revilement, and defamation. If, you, if you're living in ways that are too much in line with the patterns of the world, yes, you'll be rich. Yes, you'll be full. Yes, you will laugh now. But you'll also receive the praise of those around you. You'll be celebrated. But that celebration will come back to bite you, quite literally, because it's a sign of your falseness. And again, I don't think this is a case of, of Jesus saying, God is going to punish you for being rich, or God is going to punish you for being full. It's that this is, this is what it looks like to trust in the flesh of mere mortals, to trust in the strength of the flesh and not God's flesh. It's, it's to trust in the ways of the world, the counsel of the wicked. It's to fall into the temptation of believing the satanic in order to be preserved from the demonic. And that there, it, it's not to say, right, that there, 
there is no there, there's no time to laugh. Of course, Scripture, Paul himself will say, right? You, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep at the same time. And Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. What's being said here, I think, is is Jesus is warning us that if your life is a life that is circumstantially prosperous, and it's prosperous because you're rooted in the wisdom of the world, right? You've found a way of working with the way the world works. Then all of that will be lost to you because this world is doomed. The way of the wicked is doomed. And the wicked there, right, is not those, you know, alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes, which are the way that we caricature the wicked life. The wicked life is just a life lived from any other source than God's humility, from any other source than God's compassion and God's delight in your neighbor and my neighbor. So this, the mark of the false prophet, right, is the false prophet says peace, peace when there is no peace. The false prophet is speaking satanically, right? So if there's a way in which evil spirits can move us to be accusational, Evil spirits can also move us to celebrate in times when what's what's called for is brokenness, is is grieving in intercession. So again, as I said, I'm not going to tie all this together. There's no neat bow, but I I do think it's critical that we kind of hear Jesus out. We many of us, maybe all of us, have been formed in Christianities that have very little to do with Jesus. I mean, we we throw his name around. We don't really listen to what he said. We don't take it seriously. We're, we're explaining it away, right? So that when he says, blessed, or woe to you who are rich, or blessed are you who are poor, like we rush to explain what that can and can't mean. Because, you know, we're capitalists. We're optimists. I mean, as Americans, we're future-oriented. We have, as I said earlier, we we've been caught up in, we've bought into, pun intended, some version of the prosperity gospel. And because of that, we just can't hear Jesus on his own terms, right? We we have to explain away. He doesn't really mean that, or he doesn't really mean this. And our our hope is, is always only in coming back to him, right? In coming back to the one who is the strength of God in the flesh and letting our lives be rooted in his wisdom as over against the wisdom of the world and, and his, his humility, his meekness, his lowliness of heart, that that's where we have to be rooted. And, and that is, as I said earlier, largely about accepting that what's happening in our lives may not be what we want, may even not be good, or at least what's happening on the surface of our lives, right? The drought may be here, right? And what God is doing may be utterly hidden, not only from those who are accusing us, but also from us ourselves. We, we ourselves might not be able to see what God is doing. And yet we trust that if we, if we, root our faith, if we let our roots go down deep into the life of the one who has died, the God who has died, then 
we we are sure to bring forth fruit right and fruit that will be for the healing of the nations